Justice, may it please the court. I'm Giancarlo Conoparo. I'm Zach Smith. And welcome to SCOTUS 101, where we break down what's happening at the Supreme Court, what the justices are up to, and other things related to our favorite branch of government. Welcome back to SCOTUS 101. What a week we have had. The Supreme Court issued 10 opinions this week, which is a record, at least during my time on the show. And we got so many opinions this week uh, that we actually don't have an interview uh, for you this week. We wanted to make sure we had plenty of time to discuss all of these opinions, uh, plus a few other things going on at the court. But before we dive on in, Justice Thomas and Justice Sonia Sotomayor both had birthdays this week, so we wish them a supremely happy birthday. All right. First up on the opinion front, uh, listen up, sports fans. It's NCAA versus Alston. It was a unanimous opinion by Justice Gorsuch where the court upheld an injunction against the NCAA that prohibited it from enforcing certain of its rules limiting education-related benefits that schools can provide to student-athletes. The injunction continued to allow the NCAA to enforce its rules regarding limits on the undergraduate athletic scholarships and limits on other forms of compensation related to a student's athletic performance. The court said that the lower courts had correctly applied a rule of reason analysis, uh, which is used in antitrust disputes, uh, to the issues in this case. Justice Kavanaugh concurred in the judgment and wrote separately to emphasize that this case involves only a narrow subset of NCAA's compensation rules and that, therefore, the NCAA's other compensation-related rules remain on the books. He said, I add this concurring opinion to underscore that the NCAA's remaining compensation rules also raise serious questions under the antitrust laws. We also had a major property rights case in Cedar Point Nursery. This was a 6-3 opinion by Chief Justice Roberts, joined by the conservatives, where the court held that a law permitting labor unions to enter farmland without permission to try to organize workers was a taking under the 5th and 14th Amendments. Those amendments prohibit a state government from taking property without just compensation. A taking includes not only acquiring ownership or possession, like through eminent domain, but also depriving an owner of the full rights of ownership, like, essentially, the right to exclude someone from your property. Chief Justice Roberts called that one of the most treasured rights of property ownership. In this case, California gave union organizers the right to enter private farmland for up to three hours a day, 120 days per year, without the owner's permission. Roberts said that this law, quote, appropriates a right to physically invade the grower's property and therefore violates the Constitution. In dissent, Justice Breyer, joined by Sotomayor and Kagan, argued that California's regulation did not deny owners the right to exclude. It only regulated that right. In their view, a law is a taking only if it, quote, goes too far. And to determine that, courts should balance several factors, bearing in mind that some invasions are needed for the government to run our complex modern world. Next up, we had an important free speech case in Mahoney Area School District versus BL. It was an eight to one opinion by Justice Breyer, and it was joined by all of the other justices except Justice Thomas. 
The court held that although public schools may have a special interest in regulating some off-campus speech, the special interests offered by the school in this case were not sufficient to overcome the students, whose initials were BL, interest in free expression. In this case, a student who is upset about not making the varsity cheerleading squad posted an obscene Snapchat over the weekend and as a result was suspended from the junior varsity cheerleading team for a year. She sued, claiming that the suspension violated her First Amendment rights. Uh, The court was considering whether its 1969 opinion in Tinker v. Des Moines Independent Community School, which gave the school the right to regulate student speech that would, quote, materially and substantially interfere with the operation of the school, extended to speech that occurs off campus. Justice Breyer, in his majority opinion, noted that the special characteristics that give schools additional license to regulate student speech do not always disappear when a school regulates speech that takes place off campus, and he outlined three features that distinguish a school's efforts to regulate off-campus speech versus on-campus speech. Uh, Again, there are three factors. One, that a school rarely stands in loco parentis, that is, in the place of parents, when a student speaks off campus. Two, that courts must be more skeptical of a school's efforts to regulate off-campus speech because doing so may mean the student cannot engage in certain types of speech at all. And three, that the school itself has an interest in protecting a student's unpopular expression, especially when the expression takes place off campus because America's public schools are, in the words of Justice Breyer, quote, nurseries of democracy. But uh, Justice Breyer noted the court would leave discussion of the contours of these factors to later cases. Justice Alito filed a concurring opinion, which Justice Gorsuch joined, in which Alito agreed with the majority's refusal to set forth a broad, highly general First Amendment rule governing all off-premises student speech, uh, but he focused on the in loco parentis doctrine, arguing that while the decision to enroll a student in a public school conferred the authority to regulate some off-premises speech, enrollment did not result in a complete transfer of parental authority over a student's speech. Justice Thomas dissented, pointing out that the majority had failed to consider the in loco parentis rights of the school in this case. He concluded that the majority's approach would not give much guidance to schools about when and how to regulate off-campus speech in the future. We also had an opinion in the Goldman Sachs case. This was an 8-to-1 decision written by Justice Barrett, and the court held that in securities fraud class actions, the fact that an allegedly false statement is generic does not mean that a court shouldn't still consider it when deciding if it had an impact on the stock price. The court also held that the defendant in a securities fraud class action bears the burden of persuasion to prove that its statements did not have a price impact. That second holding was 6-3 to three with Justices Gorsuch, Thomas, and Alito in dissent. So here's what happened uh, in this case. Goldman Sachs made a generic statement that it had a great system in place to manage conflicts of interests. Well, the plaintiffs, investors, said that this statement was false and that it inflated Goldman's stock price. Goldman argued that because the statement was generic, it shouldn't matter, but the court disagreed. Goldman also argued that the burden of persuasion should be on the plaintiff to prove that the statement impacted price, but the court held that its precedents placed it on Goldman. 
The takeaway here is that it will be hard for public companies to avoid securities fraud cases and to defend against them. Uh, So they ought to be very careful before they make even generic statements that might be false. Next up, we have Collins versus Yellen. It was an opinion by Justice Alito, which was joined in full by Chief Justice Roberts and Justices Thomas, Kavanaugh, and Barrett, and joined in part by the remaining justices. In this case, the court held that the for-cause removal restrictions on the Federal Housing Finance Agency's director violated separation of powers principles and were unconstitutional. The court said, quote, our decision last term in SALA law is all but dispositive. The court held that the FHFA structure violated separation of powers principles and remanded the case for further proceedings to determine what remedy, if any, shareholders are entitled to receive on their constitutional claim. Justice Thomas concurred, stating that while he joined the court's opinion in full, he was writing separately because, quote, I worry that the court and the parties have glossed over a fundamental problem with removal restriction cases such as these. The government does not necessarily act unlawfully, even if a removal restriction is unlawful in the abstract. Justice Gorsuch also concurred in part, stating, quote, I agree with the court on the merits and am pleased to join nearly all of its opinion. But he believed that those burdened by unconstitutional executive actions are entitled to relief. He would not have taken the more case-specific approach adopted by the majority. Justice Kagan concurred, stating that she agreed with the majority that Salah law governs the constitutional question in this case. She said that while she disagreed vehemently with that decision, stare decisis required that she join the outcome here. In part two of her concurrence, which Justices Breyer and Sotomayor joined, she made clear that she joined in full the majority's discussion of the proper remedy of the constitutional violations it finds. Finally, Justice Sotomayor, joined by Justice Breyer, concurred in part and dissented in part. In her view, in Salah Law, the court distinguished the FHFA from the CFPB on the grounds that the FHFA does not possess, quote, regulatory or enforcement authority remotely comparable to that exercised by the CFPB, whose structure, of course, was at issue in Salah Law. She said, nevertheless, the court today holds that the FHFA and CFPB are comparable after all, and that any differences between the two are irrelevant to the constitutional separation of powers. She rejected that contention. We also had Lange. This case, you might recall, is the garage door arrest case. A police officer followed Mr. Lange home after observing him honking and playing loud music in his car, a traffic misdemeanor. Mr. Lange drove into his garage and the police followed uh, him right inside, did a sobriety test, and then arrested him for driving under the influence. The question before the court was, does the pursuit of a misdemeanor suspect permit a warrantless entry into the home? In a 7-2 opinion by Justice Kagan, joined by everyone except the Chief Justice and Alito, the court said, maybe. Whether a police officer may enter a home when pursuing a misdemeanant, which is a word that I just learned in this opinion, actually. I didn't know you could nounify a misdemeanor offense. Thank you. (laughs) Whether you can enter a home when pursuing a misdemeanant depends on the facts and circumstances and whether an exigent circumstance exists to justify the warrantless entry apart from just the fact that the individual is fleeing from the officer. 
in this case, they didn't decide the ultimate question, but remanded it back to the court below. The chief justice actually joined in the judgment, but he and Alito rejected the majority's reasoning. He said that hot pursuit, no matter whether the crime is a misdemeanor or a felony, is always an exigent circumstance. So the takeaway is, if you're having a little too much fun in your car, the police might be able to follow you home. Uh, so behave yourself. <laughs> Good advice for the upcoming weekend, uh, GC. <laughs> <laughs> and, you know, there have been a couple of really interesting uh, Fourth Amendment cases uh, handed down this term, uh, but I don't know that much clarity uh, has necessarily been provided. Next up, we have Arthrex. Uh, this was a 5-4 to four decision by Chief Justice Roberts, which was joined by Justices Alito, Gorsuch, Kavanaugh, and Barrett, where the court held that the administrative patent judges were subject to the Appointments Clause, meaning that their decisions could not be shielded from review by the political appointees running the patent office. The court held that the remedy for this constitutional violation was to let the director of the patent office review these judges' decisions. Next up was TransUnion, uh, a standing case, which means I, of course, am very excited. Like Arthrex, this was a 5-4 opinion with a very interesting lineup. You had Kavanaugh writing for the majority with Roberts, Alito, Gorsuch, and Barrett, holding that a violation of a legal right alone is not sufficient to create standing. You must also suffer some sort of concrete harm. Justice Thomas led the dissent, joined by Breyer, Sotomayor, and Kagan, saying that the decision curtails Congress's ability to define and give redress for violations of legal rights. Here, TransUnion, which you probably know creates credit reports and gives them to businesses doing credit checks on their customers, operated a service where it would check if a consumer's name was on a government list of terrorists and criminals. And it would place a potential match alert on their reports if the names uh, appeared on that list. So a class of more than 8,000 people who share names with somebody on that list sued, but the court said only those among them who actually had their credit reports sent to businesses as part of a credit check had standing. The others hadn't suffered any concrete harm, even if TransUnion had violated this, their statutory rights. Next up is Holly Frontier. In a 6-3 to three opinion by Justice Gorsuch, which was joined by Chief Justice Roberts and Justice Thomas, Breyer, Alito, and Kavanaugh, the court held that the EPA had the authority under certain provisions of the Renewable Fuel Program of the Clean Air Act to extend certain hardship exemptions to small refineries regarding the program's renewable fuel requirements. Uh, this was a very interesting opinion that turned on textual grounds. The precise question before the court was whether the EPA could grant an extension of an exemption if the exemption had previously lapsed for a particular refinery. Looking to the text of the statute, Justice Gorsuch said that Congress had not defined the word extension so that the court would look to its ordinary and natural meaning. He went on to say that it is entirely natural and consistent with ordinary usage to seek an extension of time even after some lapse, meaning the EPA had the authority to grant the extensions here. Justice Barrett, joined by Justices Kagan and Sotomayor, dissented, arguing that the statute's text and structure direct a clear answer. The EPA cannot extend an exemption that a refinery no longer has. She went on to say that the court's contrary conclusion caters to an outlier meaning of extend and clashes with statutory structure. 
I tell you what, if I was a student and I had to turn in an assignment late, I would much prefer Professor Gorsuch to Professor Barrett. <laughs> well, I'm sure、uh, some crafty law students、uh, may cite to this opinion in the future. <laughs> well, last tenth. Uh, on our list, we have Yellen versus Confederated Tribes. The second Yellen-related、uh, case today. That's correct. This was a six-to-three decision by Justice Sonia Sotomayor, and the court held that Alaska Native corporations are Indian tribes, as that term is defined in a law that will determine their eligibility for financial assistance under the various COVID relief bills. The court said that although the corporations are not federally recognized as tribes, the law in question takes an expansive definition of tribes and so covers them. Justice Gorsuch, joined by Justices Thomas and Kagan, another interesting combination, dissented, saying that、uh, the requirement that they be recognized. Uh, really means recognized by the federal government, like other tribes. These ones are not;、uh, these corporations are not,、uh, so they shouldn't be、uh, tribes for this law. The takeaway here is that、uh, Alaska Native corporations are in for huge、uh, COVID relief funds. Well, we still have five cases remaining、uh, from this term, including two big ones: Branovich versus Democratic National Committee. Which is a challenge to some of Arizona's voting laws, and Americans for Prosperity v. Bonta, which is a challenge to a California policy that forces nonprofits to disclose the names and addresses of their donors. And I'm sure we'll be talking about those very soon. Let's hope. I think it's a good bet with five cases left that next week will be the last week of the term. I think so. I think if I'm a betting man, I like the odds. There's no interview this week,、uh, so let's get right into trivia. GC, are you ready? I love it. Hit me with it. Great. Well, you may have heard that some are urging Justice Breyer to retire so that President Biden can appoint a new, younger justice.、Uh, you know, I haven't heard anything about that, but that would explain why I see so many pundits running around with their hair on fire. Right. Right. Well, I thought, given these rumblings, a little trivia about Justice Breyer and his career would be appropriate. Let's do it. Great. All right, GC. First up, which retiring justice did Justice Breyer replace on the Supreme Court?、Uh, I like how this is starting, nice and easy. This is Harry Blackman, and I stand by it. Although I believe that he actually was supposed to or was considered for Byron White's spot, which went to Ginsburg. Yeah, that's exactly right, and it's kind of an interesting backstory behind that、uh, because Byron White. Uh, retired before about a year before Harry Blackman, and while Justice Breyer was on the short list for Justice White's seat, he unfortunately suffered a severe bicycle accident a few days before his interview with President Clinton, and it included a punctured lung and fractured ribs. And he had to travel to Washington and sit for the interview while he was in a great deal of pain. By all accounts, the interview didn't go well. Although Justice Breyer is normally quite outgoing in person. He was in a lot of pain and he was short of breath. And after the interview, President Clinton told his staff that he thought Breyer was heartless and that he quote wanted a judge with a soul. Ultimately, <laughs>、uh, President Clinton nominated Ruth Bader Ginsburg to fill Justice White's seat. But、uh, good news for Justice Breyer: his supporters kept、uh, urging his nomination to President Clinton, and they urged Clinton to give him another chance、uh, when a new vacancy occurred. Uh, fortunately, he didn't have to wait long with Justice Blackmun's retirement, and he had better luck the following year. And of course, was easily confirmed、uh, to the court. 
Well done, GC. I'm impressed. Uh, Getting off to a good start here. All right, next up. Justice Breyer comes from a family of lawyers. His father spent most of his legal career as a legal counsel for the San Francisco Board of Education, and his brother Charles is currently a federal judge, too. Uh, So here's my question, GC. Do you know where Charles Breyer currently sits as a federal judge? I sure do. Having practiced law in Northern California for several years, I know that he sits in San Francisco. Yeah. In fact, I've litigated in front of him. Oh, I haven't personally been in the courtroom because I was a lowly junior associate, but we had cases uh, that he decided. Excellent. Uh, Well, you're two for two. Uh, President Clinton appointed Judge Breyer, Judge Charles Breyer, to sit as a federal district judge on the Northern District of California in San Francisco. Now, Judge Breyer is three years younger than his older brother, Justice Breyer. And so whenever cases that Judge Breyer has tried have been brought before the Supreme Court, Justice Breyer has recused himself from hearing them. Interestingly, both of them have also served at different times on the U.S. Sentencing Commission. Uh, Justice Breyer from 1985 to 1989 and Judge Charles Breyer from 2013 uh, through the present. Now, also interestingly, they aren't the only family members to have served simultaneously in the federal judiciary. In fact, some family members served together on the same court. There were two brothers who served together on the Eighth Circuit Court of Appeals, a husband and a wife served together on the Fifth Circuit Court of Appeals, and a mother and son served together on the Ninth Circuit Court of Appeals. So I guess for some, uh, judging runs in the family. That's interesting. Don't tell me who those are. Save those for another uh, week of trivia, because I don't know who those uh, those three pairs are. That's interesting. All right. Asking ye shall receive, GC. <laughs> <laughs> I guess that's just me signing up to get a whole bunch of trivia questions wrong on a future show, huh? <laughs> right, right. Or I guess, you know, turnabout's fair play, because you could ask me those uh, <laughs> in our next episode. <laughs> so, uh, But I'll be prepared. I'll be prepared. All right. Next up. Uh, Justice Breyer, uh, of course, considers himself to be a living constitutionalist, and he authored a 2005 book that sets forth and explores his judicial philosophy. What's that book, GC? Uh, Well, mm, this book is called Active Liberty. Uh, The reason I know about it is because I have uh, had several debates about it with, with, uh, with people in the past. Three for three. You're killing it today, GC. (laughs) Now, to be precise, the title of the book is Active Liberty, Interpreting Our Democratic Constitution. Uh, Some consider it to be Justice Breyer's response to Justice Antonin Scalia's well-known book, A Matter of Interpretation, which, of course, set forth Scalia's originalist and textualist philosophies. Now, this isn't Justice Breyer's only book. He has also published other books, including his 2010 book, Making Our Democracy Work, A Judge's View, his 2015 book, The Court and the World, American Law and the New Global Realities, and his forthcoming book later this year, The Authority of the Court and the Peril of Politics, which is very timely and which warns against infusing politics into the federal judiciary. All right, last up, GC. Uh, I found out recently there's some royalty in the Breyer family. Uh, what do you know about that? Uh, I believe that his wife is the daughter of an English nobleman of some kind. Yeah, that's exactly right. You have killed Justice Breyer-related trivia today. Yes, so that's 100% for When's the last time I got 100% on trivia? I don't know. This is great. For me, it's never. I can tell you that. (laughs) Uh, 
But th- that was really impressive, especially because this was a bit of a trick question. You know, the connection to royalty isn't through Justice Breyer, uh, but like you mentioned, it's through his wife, Joanna, uh, who's a psychologist. She's the daughter of Lord Blankenham, a British Viscount who is closely acquainted with several Tory prime ministers. Now, an interesting tidbit is that Joanna Breyer was quite the tennis player, and she even competed at Wimbledon. Uh, Also, if you're curious as to how she met Justice Breyer, it was at a cocktail party in Georgetown when he was at the Justice Department and she was working at the Washington Bureau of the London Sunday Times. Journalists fraternizing with government employees? Scandalous. Foreign ones at that, too. (laughs) At a Georgetown cocktail party, no less, GC? Who's ever heard of such a thing? (laughs) Well, Well, again, well done. And after uh, 10 opinions, uh, that's all we have for today. So thank you to everyone for listening to SCOTUS 101. Please be sure to subscribe on Spotify, Apple Podcasts, iHeartRadio, or wherever else you listen. And as always, we'd appreciate if you left us a five-star rating. You can follow us on Twitter and Instagram at SCOTUS101 and email us at SCOTUS101 at heritage.org with your questions, comments, or ideas for future shows. You've been listening to SCOTUS 101, brought to you by more than half a million members of the Heritage Foundation. Executive produced by Giancarlo Canaparo and Zach Smith. Sound designed by Lauren Evans, Mark Guiney, and John Pop. For more information, visit heritage.org.